0: You've been very truth. Who's making your decision? Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I examine around 100 pages of the works of great American writers using the Library of America as my source material. I work through it a volume at a time. Right now, we're in the middle of a volume of Jack London's novels and social writings. Uh, The volume, which I definitely recommend everyone pick up, has People of the Abyss, The Road, the iron heel which we're looking at today martin eden and john barleycorn which are really four of five of his his greatest works but so in this episode i'll be examining the second half of jack london's the iron heel in part one we learned how the main characters the working class intellectual ernst everhart falls in love with avis soon to be avis everhart who is the manu the author of the manuscript that we're reading it was actually uh it's a this it's a science fiction tale so it's actually a manuscript discovered centuries into the future and we're we're scholars or readers in the future reading back about what happened in the early 20th century she's a middle-class woman but she falls uh with but her father and she have socialist sympathies and she ends up falling in love with ernst everhart and uh getting going down with the struggle ernst converts avis and her father to socialism ernst Spends much of the first half of the novel debating his position with other groups. This is a very preachy novel in the first half, and I talk about it in the previous episode. So you can go back and listen to that if you um, haven't. Um, you know, if you haven't read the book or, or you want my opinion on that, it it does come off as very preachy. In fact, much of the first half of the novel is literally preaching, where the character will be lecturing to a group of characters. But what we'll notice looking back on it is that he's debating various groups sometimes he's engaging with the capitalist class sometimes he's engaging with other members of the elite sometimes he's engaging with the small bourgeoisie and we have other moments where characters are engaging with like the religious the, the audience of religious people that's not Ernest Everhart but that's another character a, a bishop who plays an important role in this novel or sometimes uh, you actually have conversations with the working class So we learned in the first part of the novel that the ruling class of America, which comes to be known as the oligarchy or the Iron Heel, which is a term coined by our heroes, it's consolidating its economic and political power step by step. Um, Now in this first half of the novel, we also learned much about London's views on social Darwinism. We learned how he views the train of history kind of leading towards consolidation, greater organization and greater cooperation. And we learn that he feels that we should not seek to restore early capitalist market chaos or market anarchy or, or something like that. I forget the term he used, but he, he does use the term anarchy at this point to refer to what early capitalism was with a lot of small producers. He thinks consolidation is better, but the problem is that that consolidated industry is owned by a small fraction of people and rather not in, in society. So instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, we should instead seize the machine and hand it over to far better managers. In fact, one of the first lectures or speeches you get in this novel is Ernst Everhart lecturing the capitalist class for mismanagement, right? It doesn't make any sense to have all this wealth and prosperity when you have most people hungry or scraping to get by. We also learn in the first half of the novel that despite ruling over a despotism for 200 years, the oligarchy does fall eventually. And in the far future, there's a socialist society. In fact, uh, the dating is is BOM, so it's like the 5th century BOM, the brotherhood of man. I think for the first time in the last episode, I I didn't really catch the connection. But now um, I realize BOM means brotherhood of man. This future socialist society exists. And it looks it's looking back at figures like Ernst and Avis Everhart as significant figures in the early struggle against the oligarchy. This is not the full history of the oligarchy. It's actually the history of the birth of the oligarchy more and, and the first struggle against it. The kind of the origin of, of a longer struggle rather than the full story of the struggle. It's almost as if you know if you think of the Hunger Games trilogy as kind of the whole story of the fall of that empire instead we'd be getting the story of how that oligarchy formed right. And don't even get into uh, the efforts to take it down in later years having spent the first half of the iron heel establishing his theory of socialism london now begins to get into the plot elements of the story much more leading up to the first uprising against the iron heel or sometimes call, or seemingly called the chicago commune or i think it gets down to history basically as the first uprising over these 100 pages, the second half of the novel, London often will zoom in and out. The story kind of just, it goes back and forth between zooming into our main characters, particularly Avis Everhart and what she's doing and her experiences. And she has a little bit of an arc here. These characters don't really play much more of a role um, except kind of making this political point. But there are times where London does make a honest effort to make us have a connection with these characters and what they're doing. Um, uh, but maybe the most interesting to my readers these days is when London zooms out and tries to tell the story of what's going on in the nation. And we really see him trying to be a prophet here, predicting what will happen in the future uh, years uh, of the United States. These are, um, of course, events that London presumes will happen in the future. They're science fiction, But they're based on his view of the economic system that he saw around him at the time. So if you want to read this more as a political allegory rather than a science fiction, you can. Wikipedia calls it a soft science fiction novel, which I think is true. There's no like technologies explored. Um, But there are elements that I think are interesting, like the question of what will cities in the future look like? In if in a, like a hyper capitalist or a hyper consolidated society with growing class differences, that's a good science fiction question, and it's something London kind of ventures in. There's of course much better books that do this now uh, in the genre of science fiction, but this is it's a noble effort to try to have these long term predictions. So, but London's trying to be a procrast- uh, prognosticator, sorry, as well as a fiction writer. And uh, he's trying to do both. And he's really trying to say, if if we continue the way we're going right now in 1906, we're going to end up with something like the Iron Heel. So uh, to the story, after Everhardt's speech to the Baltimore businessmen, and here I'm picking up right where I left off in the last episode, after Everhardt's speech to the businessmen who are petty capitalists, they're people who want to see the oligarchy overthrown because they want to go back to the good old days where they were the top of the pile, essentially. It's... They're the they're the kids on the playground upset that they got kicked off the the hill and they want to be king again. Um, but the what Everhard points out is the guy on top of the hill is like the biggest kid in class and we're not going to be able to push him off. You're always just going to be his at best his servants. And so if you really want to have you know freedom, you're going to have to work with us to overthrow the the king on the hill. So they don't restoring this post monopolistic vision of capitalism out. So the oligarchy um, and then at this time, the oligarchy begins to try to remove its enemies. And that's kind of where we start up. So um, kind of the first half of the first eight, nine, eight, nine, ten chapters is all about kind of the theory behind all this and the rest is more the plot and we start to learn how the iron heel the oligarchy forms and what it starts to do so in chapter 10 it's called the vortex i'm not going to go chapter by chapter because there's a lot of them but there's a few chapters here in the middle of the book that that are worth kind of looking at one at a time so chapter 10 the vortex here avis's father is fired from the university due to his publication of a socialist leaning book on education called economics and education now uh this is not all they do to him. They get him and basically force him to resign his university position, but they also then go on to suppress the book and eventually get it pushed out of the marketplace. At the same time, right-wing patriot mobs begin to form to do the bidding of the oligarchy. Uh, they're called at this point in the novel the Black Hundreds, which is apparently a term you know, from the French, Russian Revolution. Later on, they'll just be called the mercenaries. and These are, these are basically these autonomous paramilitary groups Often they're made up of working class people, but they're extremely right wing. They're like the, they're fascists essentially and they work to support the oligarchy often against their own class interests, but nevertheless, they're ideologically supportive of it and they, they sort of work for them and they do various things starting violence and that violence gets turned around and blamed on the anarchists and the socialists. Um, so the role of violence here is actually a kind of a big theme in this novel. At the same time, you have a machinist strike that's broken uh, and the kind of the old classical trade union movement is shattered in this, this strike. So notice that the machinists or the skilled workers. These aren't the wobblies trying to mobilize all workers skilled or unskilled. This is uh, kind of the elitist craft guild that gets defeated, right? So this is the capitalist class, the oligarchy, trying to destroy the, the skilled workers who felt they have a, they had a privileged position in the system. At the same time, the small capitalists are described as being put under the thumb of the oligarchy in various ways. So one by one, these kind of middle class elements, educators, professors, skilled workers, small time capitalists, all get pushed into the people of the abyss. They get pushed into the proletariat, essentially. And this is, of course, a Marxist concept, right, that as the oligarchy gets consolidated, as the capitalist class consolidates more and more people. The proletariat is going to get bigger and bigger until it's basically everyone. Now, as we see in this chapter, the major enemies of the oligarchy are lined up and smashed, intellectual skilled workers and smaller capitalists. And all this essentially means the death of the middle class, and Jack London says as much. Quote, thus the summer of 1912 witnessed the virtual death thrust to the middle class. Even Ernst was astonished at the quickness at which it had been done. He shook his head ominously and looked no f- look forward with no hope to the fall elections it is no use he said we are beaten the iron hill is here we had hoped a peaceful victory at the ballot box i was wrong wickinson was right we shall be robbed of our few remaining liberties the iron hill will walk over upon over our faces nothing remains but a bloody revolution in the working class of course we will win but i shudder to think of it end quote so there's some interesting things because from one point of view at this is the point when the socials start to win. They start to win elections. They, they have a general strike, which I'll talk about in a bit, which shows the power of the working class. But Ernst, always two steps ahead in line, seeing the future, the predictor, the prophet, realizes that it's going to be blood. It's going to be violence at some point. He starts fantasizing about how to make bombs and stuff when everyone else is exuberant over the, the rise of the socialist party. Anyway, so chapter 10 is really about the end of the middle class, I think. Chapter 11, The Great Adventure. Now, as I said before, this this part of the book kind of zooms in and out a lot. In fact, the whole novel does that. In Chapter 11, we have it zooming down into the Everharts. And it's mostly about the Everharts converting to the life of full-time political activism, right? They all had different things to do before, right? They they had their lives, but now the Everharts and Avis's father basically have nothing else to do but focus on on the revolution. The emphasis though on this cha- of this chapter is on the self sacrificial nature of the Everharts as a family uh, and their allies and here's what London says about them but this is what Avis the narrator says to it and all of this he did with no hope of future reward in his conception of things there is no future life he who fairly burnt with immortality denied himself immortality such was the paradox of him he was so warm in spirit was dominated by that cold and forbidding philosophy materialistic monism I used to refute him by telling him that I had measured his immortality by the wings of his soul and that I should have to live endless eons in order to achieve the full measurement. Whereas he would laugh and his arms would leap out to me and he would call me his sweet metaphysician, metaphysician and the tiredness would pass out of his eyes and into them would flood a happy light that was in this new and sufficient advertisement of his immortality. And later on, we have Ernst always overworked his wonderful constitution kept him up, but even his constitution could not keep the tired out of his eyes, his dear tired eyes. He never slept more than four and one-half hours a night, and he had never found time to do all the work he wanted to do. He never ceased from his activities as a propagandist, and he always scheduled long in advance for lectures to working men's organizations. Then there was the campaign. He did a full man's work alone. When, with the suppression of the socialist public houses, his meager royalties ceased, and he was hard put to make a living, for he, for he had to make a living in addition to all his other labor. End quote, and then it talks about how he starts to translate as uh, socialist texts in other languages, um, usually making do with the market overseas. So this is really about the self-sacrifice of of these characters and just the lay the work, the dedication that has to go into being a revolutionary. Now in chapter twelve, we check in with Bitter Bishop Mowerhouse, who is a clerical supporter of the working classes he has been utterly crushed by the oligarchy essentially at this point he gets placed in a mental institution declared insane because of his sermons about his support for the working class and eventually in order to keep his position he has to accept being silenced by the oligarchy Um, and he more or less comes to terms with this but he realizes he cannot have an ability to change from within the church and he fully embraces the life of an outsider revolutionary and he decides to work with the poor the lesson here is pretty clear, London's point, that the church at best can be a rhetorical device, but it will always serve the state. It will always serve the ruling class. And therefore, if uh, the church wants to be revolutionary, it has to do it from so from the outside, from outside the church structures. It has to do so by kind of going back to Jesus' original message of working with the poor and the outcast. So in a way, we this kind of wraps up what he wants to say about the church. The church has been a theme in three or four chapters of this book, and this sort of wraps it up. Bishop Morehouse isn't gone. He shows up in the the big climax of this novel, the Chicago Commune, but he's there kind of as an observer. He's, you know, this the arc of the clergyman who goes from being the head of a church, a conservative institution, to being radicalized, to trying to convert the church from within to finally being forced out and being having to go rogue that's his arc and that's that's kind of completed with this chapter Um, now in chapter excuse me so in chapter 13 uh london again zooms out and we start this is a really big important chapter which focuses on the major general strike which can be seen as the high point of socialist organizing before the chicago commune which we'll we'll see in london's point of view is more of a frustrated rebellion than anything else Now, what happens in the novel, of course, this is all history to us, 1912, but it was the future for London. Now, in 1912, there was a socialist landslide. Now, if you've taken your history classes, your U.S. history classes, you'll know the 1912 election was an incredibly exciting election. You had the Republican candidate, Taft, uh, running as a progressive, kind of carry on the Republican progressive tradition of the time, but you also had Teddy Roosevelt running for president again and he you know he was trying to he thought he could be a better he's had the bull moose party right and he wanted to or the progressive party and he didn't think Taft was progressive enough and then you had Wilson who ran as a different type of progressive right I actually think they had names like Wilson called his platform new freedom and Roosevelt called his new nationalism and they were all all three in different ways were progressives and then you had Eugene Debs running. And he got about a million votes, which was a big chunk. It was one of the more successful third-party runs in U.S. history. Maybe the best up to that point. The the biggest, you know, voter block for a third party. So it was a real election in which the socialists did fairly well. It wasn't a landslide. They didn't get all these seats. But in the novel, the socialists get, I think, like 25 or 30% of the seats. Not a majority, but enough to really start to... Shape policy and and present themselves as a major threat to the oligarchy. Now all this happens in the midst of a major economic depression, which of course Ernst Everhard predicts predicted would have happened. So we get here quote the hard times at home had caused an immense decrease in consumption. Labor out of work had no wages with which to buy. The result was the plutocracy found a greater surplus than ever in its hands. This surplus, it was compelled to dispose of abroad. But what of it's colossal plans? It needed money. Because of its strenuous effort to dispose of the surplus in the world market, the plutocracy clashed with Germany. Economic clashes were usually succeeded by wars. And this particular clash was no exception. The great German warlord prepared and so did the United States prepared. I mean, talk about, you know, predictive power. I mean, in a way, Jack London here is predicting Germany and the United States being the major economic powers of the early 20th century and coming to 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 war, right? And of course, in World War One, the U.S. would be a deciding factor, and in World War Two um, as well. Now, World War Two would be more of a struggle between fascism and communism, but still, his predictive power of realizing there was war around the corner, uh, which would come from many causes, but one certainly was this this kind of excess. Production. You know, you had all this productive capacity in society, yet you had um, not enough ability to consume at home because of great inequality. So the result became this pushing for markets abroad, which led to all this competition for colonies, and of course the war itself became a major consumer dump and became, you know, it created a demand for this productive capacity in the society. So to avoid a catastrophe, the oligarchy foments this war against Germany to spread the excess capital. The war was stopped that winter because of a socialist-led general strike. And that's the main theme of this chapter. One of the results of this conflict was the moving of organized labor, which had sort of been defeated in the machinist strike earlier, but moves them under the banner of socialism. So we see a consolidation of forces and the simultaneous shrinking of the middle-class elements of society. Now, there's a board game that was popular, I think back in the 60s, and I have a copy of it. I went on eBay and got it. It's called Class Struggle. And it was kind of—it's not a very good game, certainly by the design standards of games today. It's—it's it's not good at all. Um, it's kind of like Monopoly. We just roll dice and move around the the thing and draw cards, and the cards will give you things to do. But the main point of this game is one player is the capitalist and one player is the proletariat, and you have other players who can jump in, and I think they can be sort of NPCs or they can be players, and they're like the farmers and the students and a few others now their goal is to be they're basically there to be factionalized to be put either in one faction or the other right and so one thing in addition to kind of moving along the game board the two major factions try to recruit these as allies and that will lead them to win various crises that come general strikes and revolutions in the game again it's not a game worth investing too much in or seeking to find but it's kind of fun to look at but it has this concept of of the two dominant classes have to get these alliances with these minor classes and and jack london here is talking about that happening so in the general strike basically the elite craft union faction just goes all in with the socialists they give up their kind of privileged position as kind of the top of the of the working class and embrace socialism so um these are all very important chapters um that that's set up a lot much of the rest is can be talked about in more general terms so after the socialists rise in the congress the oligarchy takes action against them an event takes place here that clearly parallels the haymarket bombings, bombings uh, which was the you know while you had anarchists and socialists and labor unions fighting for the eight-hour day in Chicago, you had a bombing, and the bombing was blamed on the anarchists, rightfully or wrongfully. There was, wasn't enough evidence. so It was a put-up job in that way, at least. But we don't really know who did the bombing. Um, but that's led to the suppression of the Chicago anarchist community over the next uh, decade or so, and it never fully recovered from it. But in the novel, what happens is during a, a speech on the floor of the Congress, a bomb goes off, and the socialists are blamed, And they're prosecuted as saboteurs. They're purged from Congress. So all those socialist victories, they're nullified as the socialist gets purged. And they get kind of labeled as terrorists. It's heavily implied that the bomb was put in place by the oligarchy in order to shore up its its power. Now, Avis says directly this is what happened. And I think the footnotes are a little bit more... what do I want to say, they were a little bit more ambiguous about what what caused it. In fact, the footnotes—you have a future historian, or the guy who puts together this text—and the footnotes are really fun to read in this. They, you might be tempted to skip them if you read this book, but they're a lot of fun because they they give you this perspective from the far future, and it gives you a little bit more neutral. So London is has the personal account in the main text, but this impersonal historical account um, in the in the footnotes. But we get a really long footnote. This is the chapter 17. It's the end. It's, it's a long footnote that was like three pages long, though. And he actually goes through these different events in history in which bombings took place. Um, what are the examples here? Paravis. Um, I don't really know that story well, but... Um, no, but some of these are set in 1914 so they're kind of still in the future of when london's writing but he does mention Haymarket anarchists of chicago he mentions the western federation of Miners and some of the labor violence that took place there so it's a fun read i'm not going to go through the whole footnote but um he kind of mixes recent u.s history with uh what he predicts would have been the history of the few years after he he finished the novel as a result of all this suppression the the socialists go into hiding I almost said anarchist there, but they're socialists. London doesn't have much sympathy for the anarchist, actually. He uses anarchist as a pejorative in this book. So the socialists go into hiding. Avis Everhart herself undergoes this quote-unquote transformation, becoming essentially two people. One is the committed socialist that she really is, and the other becomes an agent provateur provateur, uh, of the government. Essentially, she becomes a double agent. This allows her to move around the country, but at the same time, she's able to spy on the oligarchy. So her job as an, as an agent provocateur is to start stuff, to start stuff uh, and start rebellions and start violence. And, but this gives her the freedom to move around a lot and to connect with different uh, cells of socialists and to communicate with them. So basically it becomes an advantage for her, but she's living sort of a life of two different people. For a period of 18 months she and Ernst get to live together in their California hideout and we have a nice little romantic section where they get to live a short brief time as man and wife and you know the novel doesn't lay this on thick it's not an overly sentimental novel in fact I think this novel could have done without this relationship altogether it seems pretty contrived and but um, it's there and this is kind of the closest you get to a romantic section of, of the book. While they're living there together, they capture a member of the oligarchy and train them to become a socialist. And uh, this character is symbolizes the increasing number of defections from the oligarchy. At least that's the way London or Avis describes it. Um, there's it's in a footnote actually so this is more Jack London talking to us quote the case of this young man was not unusual many young men of the oligarchy impelled by sense of right conduct or their imaginations captured by the glory of the revolution ethically or romantically devoted their lives to it in similar ways many sons of Russian nobility placed their part their, their parts in the earlier and protracted revolution in that country so um, meanwhile the nation is pushed farther and farther into oligarchy and slavery and in Chapter 21, the Roaring Abysmal Beast talks about this. Where am I? Okay. This was a surprise to many of the revolutionists. They had not conceived it possible. Nevertheless, the work in the country went on. The men toiled in the mines and fields. Perforce, there was, they were no more than slaves. As for the vital industries, everything prospered. The members of the great labor castes were contented and worked on merrily. For the first time in their lives, they knew industrial peace. No more were they worked by slack times, strikes, and lockouts, and the union label. They lived in more comfortable homes, in the delightful cities of their own, delightful compared to the slums and ghettos which they had formerly dwelt. They had better food to eat, less hours of labor, more holidays, and a greater amount and variety of interests and pleasures. End quote. So the labor aristocracy is essentially the privileged group within the working class that, that kind of maintains control. And this... But there's another side to this that merges at the same time with the labor aristocracy, and that's the mercenaries. These are mostly former members of the military or the army organized into paramilitary squads. These are the fascist thugs. So you have basically these two forces in the broader working class that are presented as being the guards protecting the oligarchy. It's the mercenaries and the labor aristocracy the mercenaries their major work is to root out the socialists and cause violence which is then used to discredit the working class causes and over time they become increasingly autonomous they're not presented as like part of the state or even part of the oligarchy they really are just thugs and yeah hooligans causing trouble they're fascist you know autonomous fascist paramilitary groups that through their actions benefit the oligarchy at the same time, the oligarchy works to reform itself. And this is a really interesting addition by London here. As with any, instit- any institution that's under threat, they respond to threats uh, in ways by trying to reform themselves. In the same way you have the Council of Trent, where the Catholic Church reforms itself. Here you have the oligarchy reforming itself. And their method for doing so was to send children to business schools, into science fields, into technology fields, and taking over as many important fields as possible. They worked hard. But their goal is to maintain their power over society. So they kind of move from an idle rich to a technocracy. And this is so predictive of, I think, where we're at right now. It's, it's almost shocking to read that. Because, you know, it, it's hard to say we don't have the idle rich like we did in the 19th century, like these old aristocrats sitting on their, their hands, right? Yeah, you know, they're they, rich still taking disproportional share of the wealth but they do things right they're part of this technocracy more and more and this technocracy becomes part of this barrier between the ruling class and the rest of us right it's a meritocratic group they can say look i got this degree you know they may have been born rich and had their school paid for unlike many of us but they can still point to their merit they can point to their degree right and this is something thomas frank has been talking a lot about recently in you know since the you know the last Presidential election in 2016, where he he thinks the real problem with the Democratic Party in the US is that it allied too much with the meritocratic professional class. Now, London's point in all this, and it's mostly explored in chapter 21, is that America was really becoming essentially two classes, the oligarchy and the people of the abyss, but there are these this, this these factions of people, the technocracy, the labor aristocracy, and the mercenaries that protect the oligarchy. And here, by calling them the people of the abyss, this is in the text itself, London himself is reusing his own language from his reportage book of 1903, which I reviewed earlier a few weeks ago. So it's in, after this, that we get the first major uprising. Now as agent provateurs, Avis is able to be in Chicago at the time of the uprising. And this is described in a lot of detail over three chapters. but to make a short work of the story, the Chicago Commune is a rising of the masses of the poor, the people of the abyss. It's a poor person's movement, um, but it's a momentary uprising. It's a massive riot that is put down with stunning brutality. London at one point described bodies being shoved into Lake Michigan. Right? Uh, all the, you know, the streets full of blood due to thousands of, of death. It's actually a pretty brutal scene from time to time. But the mercenaries were not content with what they had done. They invaded the entrance, killing the wounded and searching out the unhurt that, like ourselves, were plain dead. I remember one man they dragged down the heap who pleaded abjectly until a revolver shot come short. Then there was a woman who charged from the heap, snarling and shooting. She fired six shots before they got her, though the damage she did we could not know. We could follow these tragedies only by the second. Every little white flurry like this occurred, every flurry culminating in a revolver shot that put an end to it. In the intervals, we could hear the soldiers talking and swearing as they rummaged among the carcasses, urged on by the officers to hurry up. It's almost imagery you, you kind of think of World War II. Uh, the big piles of dead, the uh, soldiers running around killing the wounded. Now, Ava survives the Chicago Commune. Obviously, she writes this, so she survives it. And even sees at the end of this workers flowing back in Chicago. But these are like the conscripted surf labor who are going to rebuild the city. And something I didn't talk about yet, and that's the role of urban planning in this novel. There's two cities that get built by the oligarchy. I think one's called Aegis and one called Asgard. Uh, the one's definitely called Asgard, whatever the other's called. It's, it's also an A. Um, I think I mentioned it in the previous episode these are great beautiful cities and in fact the in the footnotes you learn that people still live in these cities and they're seen as great cities so London's point here isn't that the elite are not capable of art and culture Um, and I'm going to come back to this point but it's really interesting you that you have these enclaves they're gated communities essentially are being described here so that are surrounded by these massive slums of the working poor. And I think as we move more and more into a world of gated communities and slums, I think it's, this might be a good text to look back on to see what he says about this stuff. Now in the final chapter, The Terrorist, it's an incomplete chapter. Our narrator de- starts to describe how the working class in the aftermath of the Chicago Commune and suppression turned to rage and turned to acts of terrorism. Her account is ended early for unknown reasons, but it's most likely that she had to flee. And her book was not published until the 27th century. Uh, the seventh cent- or the sixth century of the fourth fifth century of the brotherhood of man so that's the novel it just ends abruptly and we just get a footnote saying this is where the, it ends we don't know what happens to avis everhart and ernst everhart is assumed they're executed um at some point because they kind of apparently disappeared from history i think we got a lot of great parallels here to our current situation um one is urban planning um David Harvey's in his book, Rebel Cities, talks a bit about this. Other scholars have mentioned how, like, especially looking at Paris in the 19th century, why was all this money spent rebuilding Paris? And um, now if you go throughout like Asia, for instance, you have societies putting all this money into building cities, into construction at a time when you still have great inequality. So how is this for management when you have people who are still hungry? And, or you have great inequality and you have young people who can't get out of debt or get an education or people don't have enough money for health care that you have societies like rebuilding cities, right? Yeah, I guess some old buildings aren't that good to live in and they might be hazards and things need to be reformed from time to time, but it seems to be a misuse of resources. And Harvey, now I don't quite remember how he argues this, but it's he's sort of saying real estate or urban planning Urban development is kind of the dumping ground of excess capital. They used to have the empire to do this, but without the empire, capital has to go somewhere. It can't just be idle. You know, not all of it anyways. You can sit on a lot of cash, but eventually it has to go somewhere and kind of investments in cities become a place where they can go. But what this means in the long term is that the cities become the playgrounds of of the ruling class and less democratic and just go around any major city, right? Who designed it? Who decided where the buildings are going to be who decided how the infrastructure is going to be laid out these are often very undemocratic decisions so you go back and um, look at Carroll's book the power broker about robert moses and he talks about you know how this was an unelected guy who could build these highways and basically determine the fate of communities this way um, so urban planning is a theme in this book and i think is an important one uh the second and it parallels our situation. Um, a second parallel is the shrinking middle class. And this is something London talks a lot about. So not only does the middle class shrink, but the autonomy of people in the middle shrink. You still have kind of a small middle class, even as the oligarchy form, but they tended to be allies of the oligarchy, right? The, the in, autonomous middle class goes away. The one that can think for itself and act in itself and in its own interest goes away. Of course another main theme that i think parallels some things we're facing today is the consolidation of businesses we're, you know and again we can decide whether it's good or not right you know in a way i think youtube is a good thing some of us might spend too much time there but it creates it is a platform for people to be creative it it does reflect some socialistic or communistic values and that people contribute what they can right and people all, most people do it for outpay. pay. I mean, there are some people who make their living from um, YouTube. But I heard even really successful channels can barely make like minimum wage when you compute the hours they put in maintaining their channels. YouTube takes all the, the, the profit. The, the, the solution isn't to get rid of YouTube and create 50,000 different competing uh, online media platforms, right? It's to make that actually, make YouTube owned by the people who create the content and the people who consume it. Um, so I'm kind of with London here that just railing against big business is, is not enough. We have to really talk about who controls the machine, not just get rid of the machine. Let's not be Luddites. Let's not be the machine breakers, as, as London talks about them in this book. Another thing, the rise of paramilitary right-wing foot soldiers of the oligarchy. And right doing this now in the summer of 2017, it's hard not to think about uh, the recent Charlottesville protest the rise of the right the rise of a very aggressive right wing um, and we don't know how that's going to go is that going to grow is it going to be um, stomped out we don't know but we if you look if you you don't have to squint too hard to start to see fascist elements in places that i once would have told you were almost immune from fascism if you would ask me five years ago i'd say the united states was immune from fascists inoculated maybe it would have been not immune but at least inoculated against fascism perhaps i was wrong we've i mean the united states have always had kind of fascist elements It's had the clan things like that but they never really were at the risk of becoming mainstream and now i don't know so there it is um london talks about it another thing war and military spending as a solution to a demand crisis here it's reflected in the growing conflict with with germany and conflict over overseas market and all that but Again, it's kind of goes back to urban planning it's that productive capacity that can't go into consumer goods because consumers can't spend. You know, if, if you have overproduction and you have a working class that doesn't have the wherewithal to consume because of debt, because of low wages or whatever, all those factories either have to go into recession, the economy has to go into recession or it has to find something else to spend money on, right? And that might be overseas adventures and right. it might be rebuilding cities It might be building the great ruling class city it might be space exploration i don't know what it is but you know we president trump has just oversaw the passage of the biggest military spending bill in u.s history which was a huge increase over the previous uh, year's budget i think it's 700 billion uh i Largest single chunk of the uh, American budget, at least discretionary spending by far, at a time when there are real social needs for education and health care and poverty alleviation and debt relief and all these things that could, that money could be spent on, they're instead being spent on war and military. Um, And another thing, uh, conspicuous consumption, and here I want to go back to the, the cities of the ruling class a little bit. give me a second to find the page okay yeah so this is in the chapter the beginning of the end which is chapter 14. Avis asks but if the oligarchy persists what will become the great surpluses that will fall to its share every year end quote now I'll just jump in here this is a good this is the core question if you have this huge inequality and this huge gap between productivity and wages Who's going to buy all the stuff that the economy can make? One solution is debt, but that's not sustainable. Obviously, 2008, 2009 taught us that. And he didn't have the idea here of of consumer debt, really. So it's just workers spend what they have in their paycheck and nothing more is sort of uh, his model. So what's going to do it? Where's this money? Where's this productive capacity going to go? And this answer is it's going to go into beautiful things. It's not going to go into trite things or garbage. It's going to do things that we might value. Quote, The surplus will have to be expended somehow, and trust the oligarchies to find a way. Magnificent roads will be built. There will be great achievements in science, and especially in art. When the oligarchs have completed mas- completely mastered the people, they will have time to spare for other things. They will become worshippers of beauty. They will become art lovers, and under their direction and generously rewarded will toil the artists. The result will be great art. For no longer as to yesterday will the artist pander to the bourgeois taste of the middle class. It will be great art, I tell you, and wonder cities will arise that will make totally cheap the cities of old time. And in these cities will the oligarchs dwell and worship beauty. And then we got a footnote. We cannot but marvel at Everhart's foresight. Before even the thought of wonder cities like Artis and Asgard entered the minds of the oligarchs, Everhart saw those cities and the inevitable necessity of their creation. Moving on to Everhart's speech, thus will be the surplus. Or thus will the surplus be constantly expended while the labor does the work. The building of these great works and cities will give starvation rations to millions of common laborers. For the enormous bulk of the surplus will compel an equally enormous expenditure, and the oligarchy will build for a thousand years, aye, for ten thousand years. They'll build as the Egyptians and the Babylonians never dreamed of building. And when the oligarchs have passed away, their great roads and their wonder cities will remain for their brotherhood of labor to tread upon and dwell within. All these things the oligarchs will do because they cannot help doing it. Their great works will be the form of the expenditure of the surplus will take. And in this way that the ruling classes of Egypt so long ago expended the surplus they robbed from the people by building of temples and pyramids, under the oligarchs will flourish not a priest class but an artist class. And in place of the merchant class of the bourgeoisie will be the labor classes, castes. And beneath this will be the abyss, wherein will fester and starve and rot and ever renew itself, the common people, the great bulk of the population. And in the end, who knows in what day the common people will rise up out of the abyss and labor cast and the oligarchy will crumble away. And then at last, after the travail of the centuries, will it be a day of the common man. And I thought, I had thought to see in that day, but now I know I shall never see it. End quote. So it's a, it's a long passage here, but it's it's all about conspicuous consumption. It's about... Where do you do with the surplus value? I, I think it's still an important question. So that more or less wraps up my, my main comments on this book. It's a good one. I, I think it has a lot to teach us. It's preachy. Um, the gender aspects of it don't work. The relationship doesn't work. But that's I don't think that's London's point here. Um, and we'll see in Martin Eden, he is capable of creating a more meaningful relationship between men and women even though that relationship to us problems is not as banal as this one. There is a plagiarism accusation leveled against Jack London in this book. Uh, London claimed it was kind of an honest mistake. But in chapter six, there was a bishop's sermon which called for social justice theology. And it was taken pretty much word for word from Frank Harris's essay, The Bishop of London and Public Morality. London, apparently, this is his defense. I'm not going to get into it. I just want to mention that this took place, this, fight this you know this criticism of the novels there London thought he was quoting from a real speech and just clipped it and it's something he does a lot and he kind of you can tell in this book that he's clipping from socialist newsletters or social speeches or essays a lot like a lot of the time Everhart speaks it sounds like an essay almost so much of the Iron Heel does seem clipped from social speeches so it's not surprising that he did that but yeah it it he did sort of plagiarize I mean what can we say about it but was it an honest mistake or not is it's something for you to determine for yourself so what are the themes of this book so in this section of the podcast I I, I kind of like to index the major themes of American writers so we can cross-reference them um, the first one will be socialism American socialism in particular and, and not only is this a book about socialism, it's by a socialist, and it's an example of an artist trying to condense socialist arguments and, th- and themes and ideas into a work of fiction for a more popular audience. It's an effort to try to popularize socialism, for sure. And it And it, and it helped, I suppose, because socialism did sort of take off after that and became a political force with the rise of Eugene Debs had a good run for it in 1912. We have religion as a theme in this novel particularly the can the question of can the clergy be married to a agenda of social justice and still be essentially mainstream. And Jack London's answer here is no. They have to basically go rogue and they have to be like Jesus work directly with the poor. They can't do it through the hierarchy and the organization of the church if they truly want to be members of social justice. The church will be a tool of the ruling class in the end of the day. Another theme is social organization and development. And here we really see his social Darwinism. I can combine these two. Jack London's social Darwinism is that societies develop to be more organized, more complex, um, and more cooperative. And that's the way they should develop. It's not the individual that evolves. It's the society as a whole that evolves through some process of, of evolution. And that is going to lead basically towards socialism at some point. Now, this novel, it's pessimistically put th- hundreds of years in the future, but, but who knows, right? Certainly, we've reached a lot of the material conditions, preconditions of socialism, of post-scarcity, uh, automation, consolidation of, of power. Um, another theme is radical movements in general These actually the themes for this book are not so specific they're, they're, I'm kind of presenting them a bit broadly now that I look at them But um, anyways Radical movements uh, Jack London's kind of on the side of the organized socialist he, He's not a big fan of the anarchists uh, In the final chapter he kind of talks about working class rage As not the foundation for real change he, he thinks it's a logical outcome of the conditions these people faced They're going to be angry and they're going to fight back but that fighting back is going to be like a rabid animal, right? It's the, what's it from the Call of the Wild, the the law of tooth and claw or whatever, right? That's what you're going to get. And he talks about this in the People of the Abyss too, that there's, there's this anger, but this isn't really going to be enough for real social change. He prefers um, a more radical, broad socialist movement. He also though, criticizes like the craft unions and the labor aristocracy and the, the skilled workers who might not be that sympathetic with the the quote-unquote abyss. Um, Not so much a theme, but it can be a question. Can change come from within the system or from without? This is something Ernst Everhart struggles with. He seems to want to have a political change through the institutions of American democracy, but over the course of the novel becomes more skeptical. Um, Now, if you go to my Philip Dick Companion podcast, uh, where I'm working through the works of Philip K. Dick, a work at a time. This is something that Philip K. Dick was really interested in early in his career. Was, uh, and he was more on the side of change could come from within the system. London, less so. He, he does eventually think there's going to have to be a revolution. And I think the way he deals with the church shows change from within the system is usually futile. Um, gender, not really a theme that London deals with, but just one that a reader looking at this novel now is going to be bothered by. The character of Avis, although our main narrator, is always an observer. Um, she does talk about doing things, but only very broadly. Is you don't really see her do that much, except be an observer to great speeches by men. Um, she's very much in a hierarchical relationship with Ernst Everhart based on her kind of infatuation with him. And so there's a lot not to like about the way Avis Everhart is presented in this this novel. Um, the next theme is futurism. I didn't want to say science fiction because I don't know if that term really applies to this work yet, but certainly f- imagining a future and a short-term future, looking ahead. And of course, futurism is an artistic movement that tried to kind of... was kind of coming to terms with the, the rapid change of, of cultures, right? And the whole rise of the avant-garde is part of this kind of futurist idea. It's part of modernism. Of course, and some artists actually try to display futurism in their in their work, but just more broadly kind of this imagining futurism as a field of prognostication or imagination. And London here is trying to be a prophet, but he's not trying to be a prophet a thousand years out. He's trying to be a prophet of what if things continue the way they are is going to be our future in 10, 20, 30 years. We have terrorism here um, as a theme Largely terrorism is the product for for London of the frustrated, agonized cries of of slaves, of the fully exploited people of the abyss, with nowhere else to turn but to violence. And they do this at a point when they lose their own care for their own life. And at several points, we see characters, always in the background, but characters described of having no, nothing to, left to lose and throwing themselves into the gunfire or blowing themselves up. You have suicide bombing in, in this novel. So terrorism is, is an issue here. And I, you know, maybe someone who's interested in terrorism could go look at this book from that context and, and get some fruitful ideas. Although I mentioned this with the parallels with our own time, the middle class here. Yeah, certainly the middle class is a theme in this novel and it's fate. Uh, I guess that's all I'll say about it. Certainly the fate's not promising here. And then finally, uh, the urban form. What is the function of cities? Cities are presented here as places of dumping excess surplus value. They're presented here as places of urban revolt. They're presented as... Um, places where classes, at least early in the novel, classes could interact and cooperate and meet each other and, and discuss things, but that goes away as you end up with more of a gated community, slum, dialectic. Um, so there's a lot to say about the city. So if any students here are listening and need paper topics and for themes, you, you know, you can do that. That's actually one. You know, I started doing these this theme part. I guess from when I first did the first novel, Type-P, way back when I started this podcast. But um, part of it was because, you know, when I would teach a novel or teach a text, I always like to like have the students brainstorm with me, what are the themes here, right? And then, you know, each of these themes we write down could become paper topics or things that could be compared with other texts, right? So you... The idea, the method was, you maybe you're interested in maybe religion, so you take the how the clergy presented here, and you might compare it to another work, or look at that, you know, other things that Jack London wrote or whatever, and put together a, a coherent paper. So, but but it's kind of the first step of coming up with a paper topic, right? Was listing the themes. So, if any of you need themes for the Iron Heel, there's some you can look from. I'm sure there's more, plenty more. If you have any, please write me, and I'll I'll, I'll mention them and hopefully add them yeah or keep them in mind next time i come across them in another book we always get blinkered right we i tend to be blinkered by certain issues and if you've been following along you know what some of those issues might be for me um don't be blinkered if you can avoid it listen to what other people's point of views are and i'm fully willing to do that so if i'm too much into class and resistance and capitalism you know tell me if there's other things i'm missing because i'm so focused on those themes anyways thank you so much for listening in my next episode I will begin what should be a four-part exploration of Jack London's Martin Eden it has been a while since I have done a long series the last book I looked at that took more than two episodes was I believe plum bun which was way back in my long series uh, on the Harlem Renaissance which go back and listen to it no one's listened to those Uh, I have audience for some of these other episodes but for some reason, no one was interested in the Harlem Renaissance. But I was really so glad to do those episodes; they're really great. Um, Plum Bun is a wonderful novel um, about passing. I also did a long series on Solar Lottery, but it's in my Philip K. Dick series. Well, thanks for listening and keep on reading. I'll be back after looking at a hundred more pages of Jack London, and we'll start it up with with Martin Eden.